to Writers on Craft. I'm Suzanne Legrand, and today I'm speaking to novelist, editor, and essayist Elisa Chappelle. Welcome. Thank you. Your list of literary achievements is formidable. I'm just going to mention a few. You are contributing editor and columnist for Vanity Fair, former senior editor of the Paris Review, co-founder of the literary magazine Tin House, which is based both in Portland and in Brooklyn, Your first book of fiction, which was 10 Link Stories, entitled Use Me, was published in 2000 and was a finalist for the Penn Hemingway Award. Your second novel, Blueprints for Building Better Girls, just recently came out. Yay! And you also have two kids. I do. I have a daughter and a son. Yes. Okay, so here's the first (sighs) question I have to ask. How do you do it all? A lot of speed. (laughs) No, you know what I realized a long time ago was that I do really well if I have a very clear structure. And I think this is a problem for a lot of writers and for a lot of women in particular. The idea of taking your work seriously and putting it at the top of the list of things to do, or maybe, you know, right after feed my children and make sure they're wearing shoes before I send them to school. Work should be a priority. Your work, your creative work should be a priority. You know, it's like what Virginia Woolf is talking about in A Room of One's Own. I think it's very hard for us to put that near the top of our list because, as you know, as writers, artists, at the end of the day, it's not like we've made a wallet we can sell. Sometimes I've worked all day and all I've gotten is a sentence or two sentences. So I think sometimes it's hard for us to take that work seriously. Years ago, I, when I was in graduate school, Toni Morrison came and spoke to our class, and she said, I don't know why it is that women have such a hard time calling themselves writers. Men have a much easier time saying, I'm a writer. Not only that, men have a much easier time saying, I'm a genius. She said, women writers, for some reason, seem to need permission to call themselves writers. And if you need permission, I give you permission. And I, of course, started to cry. I have always been struck by that. The idea of women needing to have permission to make their art or to to write what they're truly feeling, to report authentically on their experiences. And so I think a lot of what I have felt challenged by as a writer and a woman writer, you know, and a magazine columnist and, you know, an essayist and a teacher is how do I put my creative life, that part of my life that really feeds me first it's very difficult. When my daughter was small, she asked me one day, she said, which is more important to you, mommy, being a writer or being a mom? And I, I was really taken aback. Which is more important to me, being a writer or being a mom? And I said, well, Isadora, you know what? I've been a writer my whole life. There was never a time when I wasn't a writer. And I've only been your mommy for five years. But I can tell you, there's nothing more important to me than being your mom. But I can never stop being a writer. So I guess a lot of a lot of what it is is that I have to be really clear in organizing my time. So my children go to school. I am fortunate enough to have a studio space that I share with a whole bunch of other writers. They go to school. I go to the studio space. I work from probably 8.30 until 3. Sometimes I can go longer than that because now that they're older, they can get themselves home from school by themselves. But I really try and do that. I try and use my best brain, that morning brain, to work on my fiction. I really need to do that because after about an hour or so, like my, you know, that that voice in my head that says, why are you doing this? Why does this matter? There are a lot of better things you could be doing with your mind. Who cares? Who cares whether you write a book or not? It's not like you're doing a job that really matters. There's lots of art in the world. Is what you're making really so important? 
before that voice wakes up, before that negative, why should you voice, how can you voice, you can't voice wakes up, I have to start working on my fiction or writing my essay. Then later in the day, when that brain is now screaming, you have no money, you have no money, they're going to turn off your lights. <laughs> that's when I can start to do that, that money work. That's when I work on my book column. That's when I work on my essays. One day a week I teach at NYU, and that ends up taking like five hours. So there's time when I have to set aside to do that. But pretty much I have a very regimented life. And, uh, you know, you find once you like get rid of uh, fun and friends, you really have more time and sleep. I don't sleep very much. And I certainly don't see the people I love enough. But I'm hoping that'll change now that this book is done. How long do you think it took you to learn the craft of writing? I think that I'm continually, I hope, continually learning in terms of how to become a better writer. I think if you're open to learning and if you're open to the universe and delivering that kind of information that really helps you grow as an artist, that you are continually learning. I'd hate to think that I'm done. I think that's also part of the excitement of writing. I hope I'm always learning stuff. I mean, life will get really, really boring when I feel like I'm not learning anymore. I feel like I learn a lot by looking at art. I've recently started looking at a lot of photography, and I feel like, wow, I'm learning a lot about perspective by looking at photography. I'm learning a lot by reading, you know, philosophy. I'm learning a lot by listening to new music. All that stuff feeds my, feeds my brain and thus feeds my fiction. You've also worked as an editor, um, so you've read a lot of other people's writing as well. Can you make any generalizations about... <laughs> <laughs> I am much, much better at editing other people's work than I am at editing my own work. It's, it's funny. I feel like I can look at uh, someone else's story or someone else's article, and I'm like, well, of course I can see what the problem is here. You know, we'll move X and Y, and we'll cut this out, and we'll just move that there. Whereas with my own writing, I can look at it and be absolutely dumbfounded. I can be like, this is Sanskrit or this is a pile of mud. How am I supposed to make a house out of this? It would be so nice if stories were like tires. You could submerge them in water to find out where the holes are. So I have found that um, editing other people's work is much easier than editing my own work. I've also found editing other people's work teaches me a lot about how to edit my own work. Or I am slowly learning some things that are good for me in my in terms of my own work. Like I'll go through and read someone's work and think, well, you know, is that really the beginning there? seems to work much better if you move the beginning down a couple paragraphs. And then I'll think in my own work, well, you know what, if I took out my lead and moved it down two paragraphs, it would be better. But editing someone else's work and editing your own work to me are two very separate things. I hope I'm getting better at both. Um, but they are two very separate things. So how do you get perspective on your own work? The only way that I can really gain perspective on my own work is to let some time pass, to let something cool. I find when I start working on something, really going back and really trying to rejigger it too soon after I've written it, all that I do is continue to write. I mean, some of it is what I have to do to kind of trick myself into getting into that state where I'm not judging every line that I write. And when, you know, you can kind of quiet all those other voices. It's quiet enough so you can like go down to that river at the bottom of your consciousness with your little bucket and scoop up the good stuff or the dark stuff. I mean, really what I'm interested in oftentimes is going, finding the darkest, ugliest part of me or darkest, ugliest part of what I see as the collective consciousness and pulling that up. And I can't do that if I'm, if I'm just sitting down and just typing. So sometimes I do have to write a lot to kind of get into that almost dreamlike state where I can go down and, and touch the bottom and find the authentic dark feeling that is what's interesting to me. 
because I, I really oftentimes am not that interested in what I'm doing unless it does feel a little dangerous to me or I feel like, ooh, I shouldn't be saying that. As soon as I start thinking, ooh, I shouldn't be saying that, then I'm like, yes, I must absolutely say that. I think a lot of the sitting for a long time is how I get to that place, but it is not necessarily a really good thing to work for that long. For, for a lot of artists, that's what leads to various forms of addiction, or maybe the addiction is there, because it's scary. I mean, that's, it is. that's you know very what? scary work to be doing. I, I really think, in my case, I think you have to work in the direction of your strengths, and everybody has different strengths. And I'm never going to be someone who is interested in or good at writing some large, sprawling novel of manners. This is what I do. This is my form. And for me, what I feel is my responsibility is to write about the stuff that everybody feels but nobody wants to talk about. For me, and being the kind of artist that I want to be, there's got to be some bloody fingerprints on the page. And they have to be mine. Like you can't, it's got to be something that, not autobiographical necessarily, but something that I feel like I know. And if I haven't paid for that experience in some way, then I really shouldn't be writing about it there are times when that can make me feel really unstable. I wouldn't want to live with me. Although I can tell you when I'm working, I'm a much nicer, easier person to live with than when I'm not working. But I guess some of that is just I feel like that's my job. And okay, so some of it's going to be hard. Some of the stuff I want to write about may be kind of depressing. But I'd like to think that I also have a sense of humor. And that is what makes it bearable. You know, I laugh a lot. I mean, I sometimes think I'm just uproariously funny in my work. Other people don't necessarily. But I think the way that you avoid being driven too crazy by your work. Oh, actually, you know what? I don't know how you're not driven too crazy. Everybody I know who makes art or writes is crazy. I mean, you have to be crazy. You're not going to make money. You're going to spend a good deal of your life alone. Um, you're going to constantly doubt yourself. You're going to spend days working and working and working and think, oh, my gosh, I've laid down diamonds. There's a brilliant gem on every page here. And you go back the next day and you see this isn't beautiful. This isn't sparkly. These are pieces of broken pavement and shattered glass and bubble gum. You know, you take a beating as a writer. Is recognition compensation for that? I mean, a lot of people think that oh, if I were to get a certain award or a certain kind of recognition, then it would make all of this pain worthwhile. Well, I'd be lying if I didn't say that it mattered enormously to be recognized. I mean, obviously, it's a huge deal for me, and it's an enormous deal considering how long it took me to write this book. One thing that's unfortunate about writing or maybe making all art is that you do rely so much on other people's input and You rely so much on other people's opinion of you. Part of what's hard is you rely so much on other people's appreciation and you rely so much on other people's opinions. And and if you're like me, sometimes you listen to that a lot. I mean, what you learn is that you pick the people that you're going to uh, show your work to and you really are very careful, very guarded about that. Like you protect your work from the people who you know aren't going to be helpful to you. I guess what's worth it is thinking that you made the best book you could make. Okay, there it is. I'm proud of that. I'm not embarrassed of that. I made it. I mean, just being able to write a book is a huge deal in the same way that it's huge to make any kind of body of work. But a lot of people have asked me, oh, you're getting these nice reviews. Doesn't it make it all worthwhile? Doesn't it? Don't you feel good about it now? It was all worth it. And 
yeah, it was absolutely worth it. And I feel so fortunate. I'm so grateful for how nice people have been about the book and all the, you know, all the great reviews it's gotten. But I'd hope that if I write another book, even if it doesn't do well, I'll feel like, well, it was worth it. I mean, right, you've gone on a journey, you've learned something, you've made something. That's got to be worth something. We can't just put a value on something because it does well. I mean, God knows we feel lucky beyond belief if it does well. I have this kind of macabre attitude, I guess, where I feel like every book that I write, if I write another book, I want that book to feel like the book, like I've emptied myself. Like if I don't get to write another book, I said a lot of what I've wanted to say in this book. You talk about feedback and getting the right kind of feedback and also learning what the right kind of feedback isn't from some of your experience. Can you talk about how you recognize who to share your work with and also who not to share your work with? I think it's really, really important to find good readers for your work as soon as possible. That's something that has been really um, useful to me in terms of going to writing workshops, in terms of taking writing classes, even in terms of being just part of a, of a of a very loose workshop, you know, just a bunch of friends getting together and sharing work. I think what you need to do is figure out who really can recognize your vision, who really knows what you're trying to do. Because what you want to do is find people who don't want to rewrite your stories the way that they would write them, but who can see what you're trying to do and can help you obtain your goals. That's the perfect um, setup. The problem is how do you find those people? And how do you trust when you get that feedback? How do you how do you hear feedback that isn't positive? And when someone says, oh, this isn't working, or I don't like this, or, you know, I remember being in one class and uh, having a guy say to me, well, I just don't find this interesting. You know what is interesting? What's interesting is what's going on in the Congo. And I was like, a Congo? Well, I know nothing about the Congo. You know, you have to realize some people just aren't going to get it. And when your book is out in the world, they probably won't buy it. I think it's really hard, really, really hard for writers, especially young writers or new writers, to not give away their power. I think it's also very hard, though, too, if you've got a really inflated sense of yourself and what the work is. There's certainly people who could benefit from criticism who refuse to hear it. And in that case, you just stop talking right? You figure, well, let them do what they're going to do. And maybe they're right. But I do think that there's an awful lot that you can learn from feedback. I do think you need to learn to protect your stories from your family and friends and protect them from your work too, right? You shouldn't be showing anybody that loves you your work until you're really sure that you're done with it. Because invariably, they will have opinions that will run counter to what you intended to be doing in the work. And you can hurt them. And, you know, if you think of yourself as a writer or an artist as God, you have a responsibility to the work you're making to protect it from the world until it feels whole. And then you can introduce it to your friends and family. And hopefully you will have changed them enough that they won't recognize themselves. You know, the best thing to do is make them very tall and very skinny and rich. And then they, even if they do recognize themselves, they'll be like, well, look at how tall, skinny and rich I am in that story. Hurrah for me. You teach creative writing at NYU. Yes. What do you find is the biggest block for most students to writing well? I would say that a huge, huge, huge deterrent to students writing well, a huge problem is the fact that they watch too much television. And on day one, I say to them, I realize that I can't do this for you, but I want you to kill your television 
I do. I want you to... I want you to kill your television. I'm not saying you can't watch your sporting events. I'm not saying even that I wouldn't make certain allowances for shows on HBO. I think you should watch lots of movies, and I will give you a list of the ones that I think really deal with story in an interesting way or characterization or have great dialogue, stuff you can learn from. But I guarantee you that those of you who are addicted to CSI, I will see it in your work because your plots will be ham-fisted, your characters will be flat, and your sense of story will be cliched. I find another problem in teaching is, and it's interesting, you'll find it with other writers too. People say, well, I just don't have time to write. And I say, oh, how many hours of TV are you watching a week? And they'll say, well, let's see, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, Dancing with the Stars, blah, blah, blah. I don't know, maybe in a total week, maybe 25, 30 hours. And I say, you know what? What goes into your brain is what comes out. And maybe if you weren't watching 20 hours, 25, 30 hours of TV a week, you'd have some time to write. Because quite frankly, I don't know how in the world you expect to become a good writer if you're not reading, right? You want to become a great artist? You go and you sit in front of a painting of Goya and you say, I need to learn how to paint drapery. I'm going to copy the way he paints drapery until I can do it myself, right? I want to be a great writer. I want to become a great short story writer. Well, here's a great exercise. Take a Raymond Carver story and type it into your computer. As you are doing that, it's really clear what he's doing, the mechanics of how he puts his stories together. This probably means you're going to have to Hulu, right? American Idol. But it will be worth it. Well, and the other thing is, a lot of them feel like their lives really aren't that interesting, or what they know isn't that important. And I battle against this all the time, saying to them, look, why borrow somebody else's experience? What you know is unique. No one else knows it. Nobody else has this information is a big deal, that they have stories to tell. One of the exercises I give them is to make a lexicon of all the different uh, words and phrases and lingo that they use that only, you know, it's kind of like their shared language with their friends and family. And they come up with some amazing sayings, hilarious things. And I say, okay, now what I want you to do is I want you to use this in a story. Because this is what gives work the ring of authenticity. This is what makes a reader feel like they're in the hands of a writer who knows what they're doing. You have authority. You know how a 25-year-old speaks. You know uh, you know what kind of um, ridiculous like little joke a 13-year-old might might try, you know, might try out at Thanksgiving dinner. Show me that. Give me that. Write in your voice. I'm not saying you have to write autobiographically, but I'm saying you're a fool if you don't mind what you have inside your head. Nobody else has it. Don't waste it. And don't let somebody else tell your story. And don't wait. Because let me tell you, I know that for a fact, that sometimes thinking, oh, I'm going to wait to write that story. I'm going to bank that. I'll write that later. It doesn't work. In some ways, ideas are like soap bubbles. If you don't, grab them and use them immediately and enjoy them, they disappear. Or that critical voice in your head wakes up and says, ah, you know what, that idea, maybe not that smart. So you write it down as fast as you can, as best as you can. And maybe you have to put it aside for a while until you can really use it. But you need to take that stuff seriously. Having been a writer all of your life, what do you know now about writing you didn't when you started? You know what? When I first started writing, I wrote a lot because it was how I processed the world. It's still a big reason why I write. I don't know what I'm thinking sometimes or how I feel about anything until I write it down. I think when I was younger, I felt like it was some sort of magical power 
that I had, or it was the only way that I could possibly be truthful. And I didn't like to show my work to anybody. And I think I felt then when I got to be a little older, like when I was, you know, in my early 20s, that the writer as artist was this rebel person and this like we were above other people. It's like we're not middle class or upper class. We are the artist class. And I am superior to you. I'm smarter than you. I am better than you, you know, <laughs> which is really very funny. I, I don't think I had the idea that that writing really, yes, it's a it's an art. It's an incredible thing. It's a luxury to be able to do it. But it's also work. And what I didn't realize is that you have to put your butt in the chair and you have to work every day that you can possibly work. You're not a writer unless you write. And, and listen, everybody that writes can call themselves a writer, and you should, and you should take that seriously. It took me years. I was writing on my tax return for years, writer, because I was writing for Spy Magazine, and I was writing for GQ, and I was writing for a bunch of people. But if you ask me what I did, and this is when I was writing fiction, I'd say, oh, I work in a magazine, right? So I think something that I've learned is that you have to take it really seriously, and when you take something really seriously, you have to work at it. And you can't be precious about it. Okay, oh, yeah, you know what? You've written 50 pages. Oh, guess what? So what? It's not good. Throw it out. It's not precious. If you were if you were a contractor and you were building a wall and you worked for 50 hours and when you build the wall, you realize that one of the bricks on the bottom was out of place, you tear the wall down. Don't get precious about it. And it's work. It really is work. At the end of the day, does it matter whether you do your work or not? No. Like I said, it's not like you drive a school bus and you left a bunch of kids out in the freezing rain. It matters if you leave a bunch of kids out in the freezing rain. Does it really matter if I don't go home and work today to anybody? No, not really. It matters to me, hugely. On all sorts of levels, it matters to me. But at the end of the day, I guess what I've learned is you work. You work really hard and you learn stuff through working and you know stuff because you've made that work and hopefully you become a better writer. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. I'm Suzanne Legrand. I've been talking to novelist, editor, and essayist Elisa Chappelle. This has been Writers on Craft, a show about writing and the creative process, produced by KBOO Community Radio, 90.7 FM. For program notes or to listen to a podcast of this show, go to kboo.fm online or visit our website at www.writersoncraft.com.